peace be to you. In the previous lesson, we said that there is running through God's universe the law that no one shall be crowned unless he has struggled. Certain privileges and gifts and blessings are given to all of us on condition that we fulfill love and the right use of freedom. Anyone who gives freedom to another takes a risk. Whenever a parent gives freedom to a son or daughter, he takes a risk. For freedom can turn out either for weal or for woe. When God made the angels free, he took, as it were, a risk. Actually, some of them used their freedom in order to declare themselves as God. They denied their independence and thus they forfeited the right to perpetuate themselves in glory and in happiness. We went on to say that there's evil in the world and we asked at the conclusion of the last lesson if this evil would in some way get to man. God now takes another risks. He makes man. He makes him free. And he made man free, as we said in another lesson, because God wanted to make a moral universe. And it is impossible to make a moral universe without making a free universe. We can be virtuous only in a universe in which it is possible to be vicious. In a certain sense, we are less free, of, free than freeable. I should have put that the other way around. In a certain sense, we are less free than freeable. Is that the way I put it? We make ourselves free. In other words, by the right use of freedom, we do perfect our personality. If we abuse our freedom, we become less and less free. Anyone, for example, who is addicted to vices becomes the slave of vices. Anyone who becomes a communist becomes more and more subject to dictatorship. It is therefore by the right use of freedom that we finally come to that very glorious freedom of being children of God. The whole purpose of education is to train everyone to use freedom rightly. Hence parents offer encouragement to their children to choose good rather than evil. And that is what God did at the beginning. God gave to man certain blessings and privileges which would be his on condition that he used his freedom in the way that would perfect his personality. God would not force his blessings down anyone's throat. Regardless of how much you like ice cream, you certainly would not want to have it jammed down your throat. You are never happy doing things you do not want to do. All freedom, therefore, implies a choice, and choice implies alternatives. And so God gave man a choice. Our first parents were put into the Garden of Paradise. 
an Eden of pleasure and of joy. Now forget the story of the apple and do not think of the fall of man and the trial in the garden of paradise merely in terms of an apple. As a matter of fact, Scripture does not mention an apple at all. The word apple came into it simply because there happened to be so much correspondence in Latin between the word for evil and the word for apple. And then everyone began saying that Adam ate the apple. What is mentioned is a fruit. God gave our first parents certain gifts. Now that is important. Gifts. They were not given permanently. Man was to decide whether he wanted those gifts for himself and for all posterity. These gifts were principally twofold. One was called supernatural. That word will be explained technically later on. But this was the most important gift of all. It actually was a very intimate communion with God. It was something like that which we are later on are going to call grace. But this was inner happiness beyond all description. Then there were certain other gifts which technically are called preternatural. They were outside of the order of nature. And one of the gifts affected the mind. The human mind was to be free from error. It would not make mistakes in reason. Then another gift was the body would never rebel against the soul. There would never be carnal temptations concupiscence, vices, and sex would never completely be cloud, for example, our reason. Then another gift was immortality of body. The body would never die. The soul is naturally immortal. Now, all of these gifts, God said our first parents would possess, and the gifts would pass on to all mankind if the representative of mankind, namely Adam, chose freely those gifts. So he was put to a test. The test was love, that was all. He would have to prove that he loved. Now, how do you prove you love anyone? Saying so? Certainly not. There are many who say they love God, but they do not love him. The only way we really prove love is by a choice. Every act of love is not only an affirmation. Every act of love, in a certain sense, is a negation. In courtship... A young woman might say to a young man who was asking for her hand and her heart, how do I know you love me? In this city, there are 268,412 other eligible young women. 
Have you seen them all? Do you know that you love me better than anyone else? The young man, if he was rather skilled in philosophy, might say, yes, in a certain sense, I do. But the mere fact that I choose you, I negate all of them. In the garden, there was a choice. And the choice was expressed in terms of trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there were other trees in the garden, all of which gave great pleasure. But these were the important ones because they involved decision, alternatives. God wanted man to eat of the tree of life, namely, to keep in constant union with his divine life, never to cut that canal between the two. The other tree, which God did not want man to eat, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was a kind of a human approach, inasmuch as it assumed that happiness consists in knowing evil just as well as good, knowing a cancer as well as health, knowing blindness as well as vision. The choice that was given to our first parents was therefore a choice between the tree of divine life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The alternative was a choice between a fruit and a garden, a part and a whole, something that is really involved in every temptation in the world. Now, was there anything unreasonable about this trial? Is not life filled with abundant instances of receiving rewards on condition of love? Imagine a wealthy man going away for the summer and telling the chauffeur and his wife that they may live in his house, they can eat his food, they can drink his wine, they can use his cars, ride his horses, but only on one condition. The rich man says to them they must not eat the artificial fruit that is on the dining room table. The owner knows very well that artificial fruit is very bad for digestion. So he does not tell the chauffeur and the wife. They ought to know that anyway, and furthermore, they ought to trust him in the light of all that he was doing for them. If the wife persuades the husband that he ought to eat that apple, that artificial apple, she would not be a lady. And if he ate that artificial fruit, he would not be a gentleman. By doing the one thing forbidden, they would lose all the good things provided. And have indigestion besides. And they would also lose the opportunity to pass on the blessings of this rich man to their children. To make light of the fruit in the story of the fall is to miss the point that it was a test of love. Not to shake hands with a passerby on a street is of no importance but not to shake hands with a friend is sometimes a sign of contempt and can be very serious. Eating of the forbidden fruit was a sign of contempt. It was the symbol of rebellion. God was imposing a single limit to the sovereignty of man, reminding him that if he did the one thing forbidden, 
he would imperil all of the good things provided. Like Pandora, he opened the forbidden box and he lost all of the treasures. Who was it then that tempted our first parents? It was the fallen angel. It was Satan. And when he tempted our first parents, he began with a why. He said, why has God commanded you that you should not eat of every tree of paradise? There are actually three steps in that diabolical temptation. And really, for a sound psychological study of the nature of temptation, there is nothing that surpasses the story in the book of Genesis. The three steps of Satan were the following. First, he aroused a doubt. He said, why did God command you? In other words, he, he was saying that God's holding back something. He's unkind. His restrictions are unjust. Be more free. Can't you see this commandment is a restriction of liberty, of your constitutional rights? Defy your conscience. Why should you be under shackles? He began to unsettle the mind, to disturb it, to make Eve see that the fruit was very pleasant to look at. Is there anything unusual about that approach of evil? Look back on any temptation that you've ever had. Has it not begun with a why? Has it not begun with a doubt? Young man or woman, for example, goes to a certain type of college and the professor begins to sow doubts in the minds of the young. That's the beginning of the loss of faith very often. Does not an evil voice seem to be saying to us, why don't you use your sex instincts? Didn't God give them to you? Why not make all the money you can? Isn't that why you're here in this world? Why does the church tell you that you should not marry again for the second, third, or fourth time while the first spouse is living? Why, why, why? Be free. Throw off the shackles. That's what's happening every day in the world. And that's what happened in the beginning. The second step of Satan was to remove all fear of the consequences of sin. He ridiculed punishment. He said, you will not die. God said that if they ate of the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. 
Satan always contradicts God. He minimizes sin. He said, oh, it's nothing. Don't believe God when he tells you these things. Do you still believe what he said, that what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder? That's ridiculous. Go ahead and steal it. You won't be caught. Go ahead and do it. No one will know. Take that tenth cocktail. You'll never be an alcoholic. It'll just make you feel good. It's pleasant. Go on committing excesses of the flesh. You'll never be a slave. You believe in hell? Don't be silly. Hell is a punishment for sin. That's the way the devil talks. You heard him talk that way? Everybody has. Something very interesting about the devil, as explained in the scriptures, is that at the beginning the devil will always say, minimize guilt. And then after we sin, he becomes in the language of scripture an accuser. That is the way he's described in the book of the Apocalypse. He tells us, oh, it's nothing at the beginning. And then afterwards he says, it's everything. Now you have no hope. Now despair. Take to drink. And the third stage of the temptation of Satan was a false promise. He said to our first parents, You will be like unto God, knowing good and evil. This was a very tricky suggestion. This is really what Satan was saying. God knows the difference between good and evil. Now, the reason he does not want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because you, too, will know the difference. And once you know the difference between good and evil, you will be like God. You see? That's the reason he's forbidden you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's jealous. Now, what was the fallacy in that temptation of Satan? fallacy was this, that God does not know good and evil the way we do. God knows good and evil and the difference between the two in a very abstract fashion, in the same way, for example, that you know typhoid fever. You do not have it, but you know it by a negation of health. But when you and I know evil, we do not know it in an abstract fashion. It gets into our blood. It becomes a part of us. The act becomes a habit. We are impelled to commit it again and again till finally we are trapped. And Satan did not make that distinction. So he goes on through the world today saying, 
have to live. You've never lived. You've never been drunk. Innocent, aren't you? You have to know the difference between good and evil. And our first parents fell for that kind of suggestion, and the result was their eyes were opened. They hid from God. And sin one always hides from God. Their eyes were opened. They saw themselves naked. Why do they perceive themselves to be naked now and not naked before? Because the inner glory of grace which they had in their souls suffused their body, as it were, with a kind of light, and they were filled with a radiance all round about them, perhaps something like our blessed Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now that they lost that inner likeness to God, well, then they perceived themselves to be naked. The earth then rebelled. Thistles grew, the beasts became wild. Man then had to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. Nature became difficult to control. Woman was told that she would bring forth her children in sorrow. Notice that the punishment of man was in relationship to nature and the punishment of Eve was in relationship to life. All the gifts were lost. All of them. But only gifts were lost. Is there anything unnatural about the story of the fall of man? How often we have insisted on our own freedom in a way that hurt us. We interpreted freedom as the right to rebel. So we became like steam engines which refused to follow the track laid down by some master engineer who said, I'm going to be free, and we got off the track. We became like golfers who refused to keep heads down when they swung. And then we blamed the clubs or the caddy master when we dubbed the shop. Like copies, we pretended to be originals. Like adjectives, we wanted to be nouns. Like rays, we wanted to be the sun. Like printed pages, we insisted we were the authors. All of these things we did, and we did because we inherited that abuse of freedom from the first parents. Like campaign orators, we talked so much about freedom, we lost our voices, and then we no longer had freedom of speech. Our parents told us not to play with matches. We disobeyed and we burned ourselves. And when mother called, we hid. We had no fear of the mother before we burned our fingers. Adam and Eve had no fear of God before they disobeyed. And then after sin, God appeared to be an angry God. He was not angry. A boy, for example, puts his fingers into a cookie jar and steals some cookies, which he's forbidden to do, and as soon as he sees his mother, he says, Now, Mommy, don't get mad. There's no anger in the mother. The anger is only in the boy's projection to his mother of a sense of justice. And anger is not in God. Anger is in our own disordered self. And it happens, therefore, that we, the poor descendants of Adam, have 
taken upon ourselves. Something of that disorder. All we have to know, really, to prove original sin is to look into ourselves. We know very well that we're not the way God made us. God certainly would never have made us the way we are with our darkened intellect and our weak will. Something happened to us. And whatever it is that happened to us, there's all the earmarks of an abuse of freedom. We rebelled in Adam. And the effects of that sin have passed on to all of us, to everyone in the world except one. And that was a woman. That is what we mean by saying that Mary was immaculately conceived. She was preserved free from the traces of original sin in virtue of the anticipated merits of our Lord's death on the cross. Immediately after the fall, God promised that he would redeem man. He said that the seed of a woman would conquer the seed of Satan. The seed of the woman would be Christ. And by speaking of seeds, he was speaking of corporations, peoples, and groups. Thus, in the divine plan, the very elements that were used for our destruction are used for our redemption. In the fall, there was a disobedient man, Adam, a proud woman, Eve, and a tree. God would take the very elements of defeat, use those as the elements of victory. For the disobedient Adam there is the obedient new Adam, Christ. For the proud woman, Eve, there is the humble new Eve, Mary. And for the tree, there is the cross. That will be our hope.